0: to passage in Matthew, so if you want to go to Matthew uh, 27, we're going to be looking at uh, verses uh, 50 to 56 there, Matthew 27. <clears throat> glad you're all here with us. I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you and uh, we can share it together. I want to begin this way. Uh, God has given us many ways in this life where we can show that we really trust him. We can demonstrate our trust in God in lots of different ways. We, number one, trust him every day for our very life. We know that without God's decree, we wouldn't last another second. We wouldn't last very long at all. We would just expire and die. They trust God every day, we as God's people, for our food. We trust him for our shelter. We don't take for granted our clothing, our health and then especially our eternal life. It's funny how we can trust God with eternal life and then sometimes slip and not trust him for everyday things like we should. One of the ways that we trust God is by giving the top portion of our gifts, and I'm talking about things like tithes and offerings uh, that God has given us first. For instance, we tithe off the top of what we make. In the Old Testament, there was a uh, feast, not a thief, a feast, where people took the first of their harvest, called the first fruits, and they brought it to God, and they gave it along with a blood sacrifice and then a drink offering. It would be like you when you went through the field on the first swath, whether it's in wheat or a combine of corn, and you got to the end of the field and you said, you know what, that one belongs to God. So you empty it out in the truck and you take the elevator and you say, "Uh, give this to the ministry, give this to our church, whatever you would do with that. And that's the, that's the first thing you do. You don't even look at the gauge to find out how much yield this field's going to make. It doesn't matter. Whatever is the first of the crop, you're going to give it to God. It'd be kind of like that. And that is we do it before we know what, what the yield is going to be, whether we are going to be able to pay our bills or we're going to be able to sell some quickly enough to pay our bills. We do it because we want to show God that he comes first. We do it because we trust what God has in store for us, whether it is plenty or in want. We go by faith. It is akin to what we read in Leviticus 23, 10 to 14, about the feast of firstfruits. Now, you can go there with me if you want, uh, but I also am going to read it for you. Uh, Leviticus 23, 10 to 14. Remember, this describes the first fruit offering that they would give in the Old Testament. And we've been talking about, do we give uh, the first of what we have to God as well? Well, it says this, uh, picking up in verse 9. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap a harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. So we're thinking of a bundle of wheat or a bundle of some kind of grain. And we would take that to the, to the temple to God. He shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh uh, for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you are also going to offer a male lamb of one year old without defect for a burnt offering to Yahweh. Its grain offering shall then be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil an offering of fire to Yahweh for a soothing aroma with its drink offering, a fourth of a hen of wine, which would be about a gallon. Until this same day, until you have brought it in to offer to your God, you shall eat neither bread, nor roasted grain, nor new growth. It is to be perpetual statute throughout all your generations in all your dwelling places. And the idea is this. What I want to do is I want to show God faith, and when I go out to my field, I don't gather it all together and then look at my finances and look what I'm going to sell it for. I'm just going to say, God, I trust you. And I want to give you the first of what I take off of this field for you. And it doesn't matter what happens in the future. I'm just going to do that. And I know you're going to take care of me. And I trust you to do that. And so God does. I want to go now to Matthew 27:50 50 to 56. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And this is when Jesus is dying on the cross, according to the book of Matthew anyway, and that's where we're at here. And then we want to talk a little bit about uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked a little bit Friday night on Good Friday about the death of Jesus Christ. And then this morning we are going to talk a little bit about not only his death, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The issue is going to be this. Do you really believe that somebody can die, that we can bury them in a coffin in the ground six feet under, put a cement or a bronze vault over them, and that on resurrection day, God will raise them to new life, and they will actually be alive, they'll actually have a new body, and they will live forever. Do we really believe that? Well, I've never seen a resurrection before, but I want you to know I believe it, and I believe it based on the testimony in the word of God. So let's begin in verse 50 of Matthew 27, where it says this. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. What I want you to think about is that they rolled big rocks in front of the tombs. And I think what he's talking about is those rocks on those tombs are splitting apart. In other words, they're opening up. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, a euphemism for death, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after, this, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, which would be Jerusalem, and they appeared to many people. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earth quake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the son of Zebedee. Now, the rest of the text goes on to talk about the burial of Jesus Christ and after the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know that story very well. This one, I'm not so sure we know that well at this point in the uh, resurrection uh, teachings of the word of God. So I wanted to spend a little time on that this morning. Uh, Another reason I'm picking this is because when you've preached Easter sermons to the same group for 28 years, it's hard to find a different text, okay? So uh, this is why I'm in this place, because it's also important. In verse 50, if you have your bulletin, you can follow along there, it says that Jesus cried out again in a great voice, And then he died. So he's been through all the torture of the cross. He's been through all the uh, beatings of the cross. He's been nailed on the cross. He's hung there for quite a while, for three hours while he was there. The the, uh, sky turned black and dark. And so it was uh, kind of a miserable time for him, uh, to say the least. And one has to wonder how Jesus could go through all that he had been through leading up to the cross and still have enough energy to say anything with his voice at this point, but he does. The people around him were waiting to see if he was going to call on Elijah to come and save him and come down and bring him down off the cross. They thought he was calling for Elijah, and I really don't know why, because it's very plain what Jesus had said. If you go back to verse 46, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he said... These words would sound a little bit like Elijah, but it was simply my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what it sounded like in Hebrew was this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Eli, sounds a little bit like Elijah, but Jesus wasn't calling for Elijah. Jesus had no intention of getting off that cross, but they were waiting to see what's going to happen with this guy. Is he so important that Elijah will really come and get him off of this cross? Well, Jesus said nothing about that at all, uh, what the people's comments were. They were probably expecting to say something about it, but when he cried out for his last time, that is not what they heard. Now, we're going to check a few places as we go through here in the Gospel of Luke. And the first one is chapter 23 and verse 46. 23:46. There it is recorded what Jesus said for the last time from the cross. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so he was dead at that point. And that's what's going to happen here, although Matthew doesn't record that. Crying out so they could all clearly hear him, he gave up his spirit. And in Jesus' day, this phrase, give up your spirit, was an idiomatic way of saying that simply meant a person had died. So if somebody gave up their spirit, that meant that they had passed away, they had died. In Jesus' day, everybody knew that. The Jews, as we do, believe that the death of a person is when the spirit leaves the body. So whatever else happens to a person, when the spirit leaves the body, then that is true death. Indeed, this is our definition of death. Uh, James 2.26 says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. If you have a body and you have no spirit, you just have a body. If you have somebody that says they have faith in God, but it doesn't show in their life, and they don't produce works to show that God is running their life, then that's a dead faith. That's not a real faith. Uh, So that's how he illustrates it for us. In James, there is ample proof that Jesus was literally, physically dead. And for that, I want to go to John 19, verse 34. John 19, and verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So there was a separation of his blood, and that was a sign that he was really dead. These people killed people for a job. Their, their job was to uh, put people on crosses. They know what a dead person is, and they know how a dead person is dead. And this guy, Jesus, was really dead. And he didn't pull some kind of trick on the cross and then lay in some kind of a coma for three days and then get up again. No, he's dead. This was also uh, wrapped and placed in a tomb uh, just two hours later. He was dead. Verse 51. When Jesus Christ died over in the temple, now Jesus died and was crucified just outside of Jerusalem, but there's a temple uh, not far from where he was killed. And that temple veil uh, stood in, in the worship center of Israel and the earth responded to Jesus' death with great power and an earthquake. So two things are happening. There's a veil in the temple, a giant curtain, and it was torn top to bottom. And then there was an earthquake and rocks are splitting apart and tombs are opening up when Jesus died. Okay, now, what we need to think about is, and there's some uh, people that disagree, but I happen to believe that the veil in the temple, which was torn from top to bottom, was the one that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. So if I were to walk into the temple, and I'd be on the east side of the temple walking west, I would go up the temple steps, and I would come into the holy place. And in the holy place, that's where priests would come. They'd burn incense at the table of showbread and all that stuff. But then there was a, a, another curtain, there's a curtain at the door, another curtain, and that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. What's in the holy of holies? The Ark of the Covenant. And this, the statues of the cherubim that, that overshadowed the earthly throne of God. Because earth is God's footstool and Jesus reigned, the mercy seat is where God is a symbol as a symbol of his reigning on earth, his power as as the King of Kings, and I think it was that curtain that was ripped from top to bottom. Bottom. I don't know how big it was. I don't know if we have a measurement of that, but I know it was a big curtain. And you know, when you're got when you have a big curtain, you're you know small. A person would probably rip it from the bottom up, but it didn't happen that way. It's like God reached down and grabbed the curtain and ripped it open. Why would that be a big deal? <laughs> Because Jesus just died, and God did something that uh, we don't do. We don't just walk in, even as priests, even if we're assigned that that day. We don't walk in, and nobody, nobody walks up and peeks behind that curtain to the Holy of Holies. Because the Bible said if anybody goes back there except the high priest, and that on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, Uh, God would strike him dead so you don't mess with that you don't go back there the high priest in his day when it was time to go back there and offer the sacrifice in front of the earthly throne of God he would go in there and they would tie a big rope around his ankle so that if God happened to strike him dead because he didn't take care of his sin through his sacrifice that day the way he should and he wasn't right before God they'd wonder how are we going to get him out of there we can't leave a dead man in there, so in case something happened, they would pull him out from underneath the curtain, and they could take him away. Now it's wide open. Any priest that walked in could instantly see the Ark of the Covenant and the holy place of God, the Holy of Holies. What's the deal with that? Why is that supposed to be important to us? Well, if we look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, Hebrews four sixteen. writer of Hebrews explains some of this. He says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. See, in the Holy of Holies is the ark with the mercy seat. Mercy means compassion and grace. Let us draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not just the high priest can go back there anymore you and i as believers as christians can go right into the presence of god in the old testament uh, they could not celebrate the peace offering with god saying god i'm now at peace with you unless they went through all the sacrifices for their sins to get to get to that point of the peace offering and so they had whole burnt offerings and burnt offerings and wave offerings and grain offerings and blood offerings and all these different offerings depending on how sinful you were from the last time you were there you may have a lot of sacrifices to do finally after all those sacrifices you could declare I am at peace with God and the way I did that was I did the peace offering and part of that I got to keep and I got to roast it and eat it with my family and eat it with my friends and the idea is I'm also eating it with God because I'm at peace with God. I wasn't until I did my sacrifices. Now I am. By the way, it's all by faith. And now what you did today, you belong to Jesus Christ. You just walked in the place where Jesus is worshiped. Today we're going to celebrate communion, if you care to join us for that. And we're going, to, we're going to do communion. And that is a peace offering. That's what it was about. And we're just going to declare, God, I'm at peace with you. Well, I didn't do any sacrifices. Anybody here sacrifice a, a calf or anything before they came? No? Anybody sacrifice a lamb or a goat or a scapegoat or anything like that? No, we just accepted that Jesus died in our place on the cross and we've been given eternal life. We just accepted that and we walk in and we get to celebrate peace with God. No sacrifice, no bloodletting on our part, nothing except the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So it's fellowship and we can approach God just like the high priest could, except without fear. And we can get help there. And that's what God wants us to do. The terror was an unnatural terror from top to bottom. I think it was the Lord himself who made it terror. And then there's this earthquake, and also uh, there was a response to the death of Christ in the earth. It caused certain rocks to split apart. Uh, I've only been in a few earthquakes, nothing ever very big, but I understand they can get pretty nasty. Uh, after being in Moab, Utah, I wouldn't want to be out there with those rocks in a big earthquake, uh, but I can't imagine splitting a rock in half because of an earthquake. I don't know how that happens, but it did. And these rocks were at least inclusive of some of the great big stones that were rolled in front of some of the tombs of some of the Old Testament saints who were believers and had died. And uh, these would have been Old Testament people that put their faith in God for their salvation. Not, ne- not Jesus Christ, because at that point, he hadn't died yet uh, for, for anybody. He's in the process of that. He's in the tomb. He resurrects, and then uh, something very amazing happens in verses 52 to 54. Dead saints arose who visited Jerusalem, and the centurion expressed his faith in Jesus. Look at that. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had died, fallen asleep, were raised. You get that? Jesus Christ is killed on the cross. The earth responds with darkness and an earthquake, and the earth responds by, by just trembling. And what happens is some stones are broken in front of tombs of people who were believers. And now it says those who were dead who were believers are standing up, walking out of their tombs or crawling out for some tombs that weren't as expensive and they crawl out and they stand up. They're alive, they have a body, people will recognize them. And it says coming out of their tombs after his resurrection because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and now these follow him. They entered the city and they appeared to many. So the earthquake helped in opening up the tombs many bodies of the righteous dead were disgorged from those tombs and think about this you know what happened in a tomb in those days they would put somebody on a shelf they would let their their material bodies rot away and when it was finally all gone they would take the bones of that person put them in a box called an ossuary and put it on a lid then if you were wealthy enough and you had a big enough tomb Uh, We need to prepare, you know, the slab for the next dead relative. We take that ossuary and we stack it up in the corner, and the whole family's over there. Sometimes, if they're well, they put the name of the person on the outside of the ossuary. That means some of those dead saints were already in the box. All that was left was bones, and God resurrected them, and they had bodies, and they went to town and saw people. Can you imagine? Grandpa, I thought you were dead. And, and, I almost said Millie, but we have a little girl named Millie. And so and so, you're alive. How'd that happen? What is going on here? Their physical bodies were raised from the dead. Noelle was telling me about talking to a kindergartner about the resurrection of the synagogue's, uh, synagogue official's little daughter, where Jesus said, Talitha cum, little girl, come get up. And it was only his disciples and her parents that were in the room. And guess what happened? The little girl got up. And while I was telling this story and the kindergartner was talking and said this, why would anyone want to come back from the dead? You're already with Jesus. <laughs> That's insightful. That's a great question. Um, I don't know if these people complain, Lord, I don't want to go back there, but you know, if you want me to, I will. But they did. And people in the text most likely received their resurrection bodies at some point, uh, then were taken back up into heaven. They weren't allowed to stay there. What were they doing? They were there to witness. You guys, do you understand what just happened over here on this hill? Do you understand that Jesus Christ is resurrected? Do you understand that I am proof of the resurrection? You know, five minutes ago, I was bones in a box. Or maybe I was a rotting corpse on a slab and now I'm alive and I'm here to tell you, it is real. It happened. Jesus raised me from the dead. And Matthew is the only one who gives us this information. You can't find it in any one of the Gospels except here. They most likely were not raised until after Jesus' resurrection because 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says Christ is the first fruits, and now we know what that offering is. We know that it's the first of something to happen, and it's given to God. He is the first fruits of those raised from the dead after his death. So I think they didn't come out until after his resurrection. And so there they are, bearing witness to the power of God. They probably were going into the city in broad daylight. They appeared to many people. This wasn't hidden somewhere. Can you imagine your dead father showing up at your house? Uh, Dad, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know? Well, let me tell you. Jesus Christ gave me the power of resurrection, and he can give you that power if you'll trust him as your Savior. These folks were recognizable, and many saw them. Why would God do that? What was his purpose? And I think it was the connection to the first fruits offering, first of all, and then also to prove Jesus can do what he says he can do. You know what, I've, I've got uh, every, so to speak, every egg in his basket and I'm counting on what he said. I'm not counting on any other religious system. I'm not counting on any other so-called God in the world. I'm counting on one God and that's Jesus Christ. And I'm counting on him to save me. And I have given everything I have for that one God. And if he isn't the right God, then I'm not going to make it because I've given no room in my life for any other God, just him. And I did what he told me to do when I was eight years old. He said, you had to repent of your sins and trust that he died on the cross in your place. So my dad helped me do that when I was in my bunk bed at eight years old before bed one night. And I made a decision, and I remember making it, and I remember dad leading me in that. That's when I said, I am a sinner, and I want you to forgive me. And I want you to come take residence in my life. And he does, he does that through the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus forgave me. And so when I do a funeral, I tell people, if you want to get out of this grave and go to a good place, you must trust Jesus as your Savior. If you don't want to go to a good place, then just disregard everything I'm saying. Some righteous dead rose from the grave, and they represented the harvest of souls that Jesus will win and of the harvest in the great resurrection to come, proof that he can raise people from the dead. Do you believe that happened? Do you believe that was true? Why wouldn't I? Would it, why wouldn't I just believe because, uh, you know, personally I didn't see it, so would I say, well, I can't believe it because I didn't see it? I don't operate like that. I don't think you do either. There are certain people tell us stuff, you believe them, and you don't make them prove it, and I believe God. It's, it's my experience uh, sometimes that helps me and sometimes not. I, I don't believe that it is my experience at the end of the day that makes me uh, be able to judge something true or false. It's the truth of the word of God that gives us that power. All right? Years and years ago, one of my cousins was uh, down changing some water and some irrigation pipe on what we called the creek place. I know some of you say creek, just bear with me, okay? Uh, we called it the crick. I don't know why, but it's the crick. Anyway, he was down there by himself, he was 11 miles from the main farm out in the middle of nowhere, And uh, he liked to do things all hours of the day and night. It was already dark. He went down to uh, shut some gates off on some alfalfa and open some more irrigation gates in the pipe. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, if not, just take my word for it. Anyway, he gets done. He's in his old Chevy pickup, and he starts up out of the bottom of the creek place. All these trees there, which are unusual for McDonald, Kansas. But he comes up on the other side, and you go on this ridge next to this pasture on this road, and you can see the whole creek bottom. And he got there, and he shut off his lights, and he shut off the pickup, and he didn't move. Why? Because he said there were three lights, three orbs, if you will, and they were darting up and down the creek and over across the top of the trees, and one would move, and the other would move, and they went up and down, and they'd sit there for a while, and he just sat there scared to death. And uh, finally, they left, so he started his pickup and turned the lights on and drove back home. I wasn't there, but the guy's not a liar. And he, I don't know that I've ever seen him afraid of anything. I think he saw something. And it had to be some kind of UFO. Even the government now has released footage on UFO, and they believe in it. And I believe him. I wasn't there. I am not the judge of it, except for I took somebody who tells the truth. And whatever had happened to him, it was very real. So I'm saying it's going to happen. And there's people that I can trust from the Old Testament And you might think the UFO thing is pretty bizarre, but you know what? Seeing people that have raised from the dead, that'll change your day for you. Uh, That'll make you stop and think, boy, do I really believe this? Well, I want us to believe it. I want us to believe it happened. How can I say I believe in my own resurrection from the dead and then think, well, this is just a made-up story by Matthew? God doesn't do that. Well, if he doesn't do it for them, he doesn't do it for you. Uh, Paul had a a real stern talk with the Corinthian church about the reality of the resurrection in chapter 15 of, of 1 Corinthians. You can read it later. The centurion, a pagan Gentile who had no claim with Judaism at all, saw the results of the earthquake, and he and other soldiers were frightened. Don't forget that they had also been standing in the dark in the middle of the day for at least three hours, They have heard the things Jesus has said from the cross. The promise he made to an unbelieving criminal that was dying because he should die on the cross next to him. Talk about great prison reform. That's Jesus. They heard all that he had to say to the father and to the people around him. So the centurion, a Gentile, expresses faith in Jesus while religious leaders stood at a distance, mocking Jesus Christ, making fun of Jesus Christ, saying, if he's anything, Elijah will show up. If he's a nothing, Elijah won't show up. And Elijah didn't show up. And they continued to believe that he was absolutely nothing. He stated this centurion that Jesus was truly the son of God. He also praised God with these words from Luke 23:47, where he said, certainly this man was innocent. This Gentile professional soldier stands as yet another witness to you and I that we can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Then the last section in 55 to 56, there are some women there of reputable faith who witnessed these events as well. And in the first century, the testimony of a woman didn't mean anything in court, but it means something to me today. Yes, they said it was Jesus and he did die. These friends of Jesus witnessed it. Yes, two of these women saw Jesus alive and resurrected. Can you believe them? I do. Women were at the crucifixion site. Uh, They would not have caused concern for the Roman uh, soldiers there. Women showed up to those often. They saw and heard what Jesus had to say from the cross. Mary heard Jesus assign John to be uh, the new caretaker of of Jesus' mother. Can you believe them? As someone said, Jesus refused to save himself so that he could save others. Let me just personalize that and restate it and say this. He refused to save himself so he could save you. So he could save you. He proved he could resurrect the dead. So you would believe that he can do that for you. Do you? Other than false religions and fantasy about death, do you have a reliable plan to deal with your own death? Are you sure? Is it gonna work? Luke seven twenty three. Jesus said these words, and I quote, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Have you been offended by Jesus? How dare he even, even say that he would send anybody to hell? What kind of an unloving God is that? Does he offend you? Does he offend you by saying you're a sinner and you need his help? Does that offend you? Blessed are those who are not offended at Jesus Christ. Well, some people say they believe in Jesus, but what do you believe about Jesus? Lots of people believe that Jesus was real and he, lots of them believe he died on the cross, but they don't trust that for the forgiveness of their sins. Is it that he will let you into heaven because you're good and that's what you believe about Jesus? Hey, he was a good guy. He loved everybody. He loves me. He's going to let me in for no good reason except that I'm, I must be, I'm a pretty great guy. When the Bible says there's no righteousness in us at all. Or is it that you believe he is God? And you think, well, because I believe he's God, I get to go to heaven. What about that? Even the demons believe and shudder, James 2.19 says. And demons aren't going to heaven. But James says, you believe God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe that, and they're not going to heaven. What do you really believe about Jesus? That's the issue. There's only one thing you can believe that gets you salvation. Number one, he is the son of God, the savior of the world that he lived a perfect life, and he gave up that life on that cross for you and me, and he came back to life again to prove that he could give you life. And so when we believe, we're saying, God, I confess to you I am a sinner. I have nothing to offer you for salvation. I have nothing you want. I need everything you give me. I I need your righteousness. I need your forgiveness. I need, I need you to declare that I'm saved because I had faith in you. That's what I need. And that's what I did when I was eight years old. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you understand, you just have to say the same thing. Jesus Christ, I know I'm a sinner. Would you please forgive me? I want you to be my Savior. I believe that you paid for my sins on the cross. You say that in faith, you just became a believer. And God will give you heaven. And one of the things we do while we're waiting for that is that we remember the Lord's Supper. And if you have the cup that they gave you, uh, there's. I need to live in such a way that I am that salt and I am that light. Jesus said this of us, we who are his disciples. We are on earth to make a difference for him the one that we love is the one that we live for. We want to reach men and women and boys and girls with the good news of salvation. So a real big part of Awana is telling kids from the Bible what it means to have eternal life and have all your sins forgiven. All right, that's called salvation. And the good news is that God has provided a way for us to get rid of our sins in terms of how he views them. And then... Uh, We want them to join forces with us in reaching other people. Now I want to read from our text in Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. And here is what it says. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now he said we are salt, now he's going to talk about the light. You are the light of the world, and here light means truth. Uh, We are trying to get the truth of the Bible out to people so that they can know God as their Savior and walk with Jesus. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So Jesus tells us, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven." In other words, God wants people who don't know Jesus Christ to see Christian marriages where people are joined at the heart, where they love each other and they love their children and they're doing what is right for their kids. They're doing what is right for each other as spouses. He wants to see Christians at work who aren't cheating. He wants to see Christians at work that don't steal things. He wants Christians at work not to let their mouths run amok and get into all kinds of foul language. He wants us to be different than the world. He wants us to shine a light that says, here is the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, and our lives are supposed to be that way. Now, we all know that we're sinners. We all know that we fail, and we all know that we have a God who will forgive us for those failures. But our goal is not to be a failure, not to make that a problem, but to live in such a way that we can be lights for Jesus Christ. I'm going to go back to verse 13, and we'll start there at the beginning. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus says, but things can happen to salt that makes it worthless. Don't let that happen to you. We learn here that we make a difference in life by carrying out Jesus' desire for us and concern for others. We make a difference in life by carrying out the desires of Jesus for us and his desires concerning other people in the world who don't know him. Now, the Bible is not saying literally that uh, we are just made up of sodium chloride you know the chemical compound n-a-c-l when it says you're the salt of the earth he isn't saying i just want you to know what you're really made of and it's just salt no Uh, though we have salt in us and i understand we can't live without it i understand that salt is an electrolyte it is essential to life Uh, you get too much salt and then you get this uh, lethal dosage thing and you get too much and it can actually hurt you But when it comes to be a Christian, people can't get too much salt from us about Jesus. Jesus means to get us to see a correlation between what salt does on earth and apply that to our life in Christ. What is salt for on earth? What does it do? How does man use it? And how does Jesus wanna use you to salt the world and flavor it for Jesus Christ? So we understand it's a figure of speech. Jesus isn't saying that if you serve me enough, you'll actually turn into salt. In fact, there's somebody in the Bible who didn't do what God told her to do, and God turned her into salt, and that was a punishment. It's a figure of speech called simply a symbol where a material object is substituted for a moral spiritual truth, or more technically, it is a metaphor where one thing represents another. You are represented by salt, and salt, and what it does in the world uh, is what you represent spiritually to others. So what did Jesus mean when he called us the salt of the earth? I want you to picture, this is a sermon that's taking uh, its place on a mountainside. Jesus is up on the mountain, probably not a big steep mountain. There's thousands of people there, and Jesus is preaching to them, Uh, the word of God, and he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. He was talking to those in the crowd who believed in him. You're the salt of the earth. I wonder what an ancient person in Jesus' day thought he meant when he said, you're the salt of the earth. They certainly thought of something. Uh, What did he mean when he called us the salt of the earth? Most people will define the activity of salt in basically seven categories. Now, whether or not the people there that day Thought of these seven categories or just thought of one thing? I don't know. I think if you were telling people today you're the salt of the earth, they're probably going to be drawn back to their table, and on their table are some salt and pepper shakers, and they're thinking, What this salt does for my food, that's what God wants me to do for the world. Maybe just that simple. But it could be other things. First of all, salt is a seasoning, and we keep it in a shaker on our kitchen tables or dining room tables, uh, whichever you want. But it's there because sometimes the cook tries to back off on the salt and lets everybody choose how much salt they want. I happen to like salt, probably more than I should, uh, but there's always a salt and pepper shaker on our table uh, whenever we eat, and I use it. Secondly, it is a preservative. In ancient times, and really even today, people used it to pull moisture out of the meat that they had butchered and had stored, and, they may, and it makes it last longer. So it's a preservative as well. Thirdly, it was used in Old Testament sacrifices. And I don't know if I want to read all of these, but I, I, I think I have time. So I just want to show you the Bible does say that. So uh, this is also in the back of your bulletin if you're following along with me. Uh, Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13, where it says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all of your offerings, you shall offer salt. So God is saying, I want you to take this seasoning salt. I want you to put it with the sacrifices that you're doing. And when you offer them to me, it needs to be present. Fourthly, it was used for destroying. And I mentioned this just briefly, but if you want to go to Genesis chapter eight, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 19, In Genesis chapter 19, we have that famous story of God taking and preserving Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah because he was a righteous man, so he led him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God told them, don't look back on Sodom and Gomorrah. Because when you look back and God has taken you out of that sinful place, it means you left a little bit of your heart there in that sinful place. And God said, don't look back. Well, Lot's wife on the way out uh, happened to look back. And it says in verse 26, but his wife from behind him, in other words, he didn't see it, uh, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. You say, how in the world does that happen? Well, it happens because God is God, and he can do anything that he wants, and he turned her into a pillar of salt. And so that was uh, was a, a definition of some destruction where salt was concerned. There's another place where a guy by the name of Abimelech, a king, did this to a place called Shechem. And that's in Judges 9. If you want to look there, Joshua Judges. And I'm looking it up too, so maybe we'll get there about the same time. Judges 9.45. So this is another one where salt was destruction. And uh, this is by a guy named Abimelech. And so, as we read there in 945, it says, Abimelech fought against the city. That would be Shechem all that day. And he captured the city and killed the people who were in it. Then he raised the city and he sowed it with salt. And he put that salt in the ground because it would make it a destitute place. Uh, it's not going to grow wealth or salt in the ground. Having said that, in ancient times, salt was often also used for fertilizer because it helped fields retain water, kill weeds, and stimulated growth. So they often used it as a fertilizer. Then there was known as what is a salt covenant, Numbers 18, 19. So what I'm saying is that your Old Testament person knew a lot about salt. They heard about it a lot, and it was used in some of their, their sacrifices and the things that they gave to God. In Numbers 18 and 19, it says this, all the offerings of the holy gifts, which are the sons of Israel offered to Yahweh the Lord, I have given you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is, every, it is an everlasting covenant of salt before Yahweh to you and your descendants with you. Yahweh is just God's Hebrew name. So we see salt used there. And then lastly, uh, salt was at times in the ancient world used as money. It was so valuable, it became something that you traded with. And it was often the salary for a soldier. And it was also for trade. Moorish merchants at one time traded one pound of salt for one pound of gold. Now that means that was worth a lot. I'll give you one pound of salt for your one pound of gold. And that happened in the past. Well, it's impossible for us to know what the people in the crowd on that day were thinking when Jesus said that. Uh, but one of those things had to come to mind, and it always means that salt makes a difference wherever it is. It, wouldn't be, it would be impossible to know what they were thinking, and it's impossible to know what you're thinking as we're talking about this, which one you would pick, but salt makes a difference, and that's the issue. And I don't know what the average person listening is going to say about uh, that sermon of Jesus. The main point is that wherever salt is used, it needed to be salty and that's how it works. We can say that wherever you are as a person who believes in Jesus Christ for salvation, wherever you are as a Christian, you and I need to be Christians. If we say we're a Christian, wherever we're at, that's what we need to be. We don't want people mocking God because of the way that we live, because we go against what he tells us to do. We want them to be drawn to God. And what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, if the salt becomes tasteless, the Bible says. It is not uh, repairable. You can't make it salty again. But he said in those days, you just throw it out in the street and people walk on it and horses walk on it and they trample it in the ground with the wagon wheels. That's all it's good for. Just throw it out. And so it's useless. Now, this is certainly not about the false teaching that someone could lose his or her salvation. The Bible says once you have your salvation, you can't lose it, it doesn't matter what you do. Now, we don't wanna go out and sin just because we can't lose our salvation, but you can't lose it. Uh, But you can become tasteless. Uh, You can't lose the fact that you're really uh, the salt and light of the world, but you can also become tasteless. So what does Christian salt look like? Well, um, here's what it isn't. It isn't something that doesn't make a difference uh years ago uh i got to the place where we had enough people at the table it was a narrow table that i asked my wife if we could buy another salt and pepper shaker so if you come to our house and eat there's a salt and pepper shaker on this end of the table and down here so you know you can get to it easier and it's right there for you and everything like that and we bought this actually i picked them out there were some pretty pretty big salt and pepper shakers it was glass it had one of those chrome tops i think it was plastic on there it might have been metal But we had it it for quite a while, like two or three weeks. And it just seemed to me like you could shake and shake and shake and get nothing out of that salt shaker at all. You just wouldn't come out. And one time I thought, you know, I can barely taste the salt. I said, I could barely taste the salt. That turns out to all be in my mind. Because I took it one day and I held up my hand and I shook and shook and shook and shook. Nothing would come out. I said, what kind of people make a salt shaker with holes that are too small to get the salt out? So during the meal, because that's the way I do things, I grabbed the salt shaker and I said, I've had enough of it. It's over with. It's done. I walked out into my garage. I got my drill. I chucked up a little drill bit, and I was going to make those holes a little bigger because I'm sick of fighting it, and I put it to the top of that little lid, and all of a sudden this little piece of plastic started spinning around my drill bit. (laughs) They put plastic over the top to protect it, and we never took it off. (laughs) (laughs) And when I put the drill bit there, it, it pulled it off. I didn't want to admit that when I walked in in front of the family as I'd just been out drilling a hole in plastic, you know. It wouldn't work. And then I told you it wasn't putting out enough salt. It wasn't putting out any salt. It was all in my head that I was tasting salt. There was no salt. That was at the other end of the table. Those people were happy. Their salt was working. I was unhappy. My salt didn't work. Boy, when I brought it back in with that plastic on, we kept that salt shaker because it's really good. God doesn't want you to be a salt shaker, that you keep your salt to yourself. That you look like something good ought to come out of you. But when people shake it, nothing does. And you have to stop and ask yourself, what is keeping me from living like a Christian and being somebody who seasons the world with God? It is a Christian who changes the flavor of the circumstances he or she is in and among people they are with. That's what a believer does. That's what being a believer is all about. We change, if you will, the flavor of the circumstance that we are in. I want to go to a place now. This is not going to say salt, okay, but that's not my point here. I want to go to Jeremiah, and that's in your bulletin as well. Jeremiah chapter 15. And verse 19, this is a believer who makes a difference, and that's what we're talking about. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, God's Hebrew name, if you return, then I will restore you. See, there's some believers that had lost their tastefulness. Jesus tells us, don't ever lose that, always keep that. But uh, here God is offering some people that fell into sin that I will restore you. Before me, you will stand. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will be my spokesman. For their part, they may turn to you. But as for you, you must not turn to them. God is talking about people that should have been different from the world, and they weren't. And he's going to give them another chance. And he said, what you're supposed to be doing in the world is what I did for you. See, if you don't know Jesus as your savior, if you've never said, forgive me of my sins, Jesus, I trust that you paid for my sins on the cross, if you've never done that, then you don't know Jesus as your savior and you're not gonna go to heaven when you die and somebody needs to tell you that message and you need to respond to it and say, I'd like to go to heaven. I'd like to know how to do that. And so you tell them, you admit you're a sinner, you ask Jesus to be your savior and forgive you of your sins and he does it and you become a Christian. And what he's saying then to Jeremiah is what I want you to do is I want you to be in the world and find those who are headed for worthlessness because they don't know Jesus and you extract the good out of there by telling them about Jesus and they become believers. You extract the good and the valuable from that which was formerly worthless. And then another illustration of that is Malachi chapter 2 verse 6. And he's talking about Levi, his servant. Levi was the teacher of Israel. And all of his descendants, the Levites, uh, they also were teachers. And God is talking about how bad Israel had gotten. But he talks about Levi, and he says in verse 6, True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. See, if you're going to represent God, you can't lie to people. If you're going to represent God, you can't have unrighteousness on your lips. If you're going to represent God, you have to have the truth of God's word on your lips, and you have to live it. And God is saying, that's what Levi did. True instruction. That was found when he opened his mouth, and no unrighteousness was found on his lips. He walked with me. That's capitalized because it's talking about God. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many back from iniquity." So there's a man who taught the word of God, lived the word of God, and he talked to people about that, and because he was willing to talk to them, because he was willing to tell them where you can get life, and he salted that. Many people came to know God as their Savior, and they were saved. And once they were worthless as far as God was concerned, because they were headed for hell as sinners, and now they're not now they are valuable so valuable that they understand now that jesus died on the cross to save them and also sometimes salt brings judgment on those who don't come to christ in mark chapter 6 jesus said i'm sending you out to the villages of the nation i want you to preach the gospel to them and i I'm, my, my prayer is that they all turn to god and you go do that, but if you go to a place, if you go to a town, and they won't hear your message of salvation, they won't hear that God loves you, they won't hear that there's hope and and there's light and there's truth in Jesus Christ, then when you leave that city, dust off your feet, and that will show their guiltiness before God, because they wouldn't listen to God, and they wouldn't turn, and they wouldn't change their ways, so uh, salt in that sense can be a, a sense of judgment, again, like we saw earlier Our saltiness brings the opportunity for people to have eternal life. Paul talks about that in the book of Romans chapter 10. And I'm going to look at verses 14 through 15. Paul says to believers, when he's talking about how much he loves those who don't know Christ and how much he wishes they would come to know Christ and become believers, Paul says... How will they call on him, meaning Jesus, in whom they have not believed? Well, you can't. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Well, if I've never heard the message, I can't believe. Then he goes on to say, uh, and how will they hear without a preacher? Now, he doesn't mean somebody like me, although I do preaching, I'm doing it right now. He means people like you. Telling your friends, telling the people around you how they can have eternal life how they can spend the rest of eternity with God in heaven. Do you care about your friends that much? Do you care about them enough to live the salting life and to spread the light of the truth of God with people? Are you willing to be that preacher? Are you willing to, be to, uh, willing to tell somebody that may not have another chance in life, may never be around another Christian, are you willing to tell them how they can have eternal life? Are you willing to be that, uh, that light? Are you willing to be that preacher? He says, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tidings. God thinks your feet are beautiful when you carry the gospel message to another person and tell them how they can have eternal life. And I think we all need to have those beautiful feet. Well, we also stand against evil, suppressing it in the world. The Bible says the end of our time is, is given to us in terms of what things we should expect. I'm seeing lots of things. I don't see anything at all that stands in the way right now of, of the rapture of God taking us out of here. I think it could happen any moment. I think it's going to be soon. And when God removes his church from the world, he removes the, the light from the world. He removes the restraining influence. God is working through us to restrain evil. So we as Christians stand against things that the Bible say are an abomination and evil in the world, and we preach it and we teach it and we live it. One day when God removes us, no one will stand in the way of evil. And that's when God takes uh, his influence out of the world and the world turns to the antichrist and the false prophet and they follow the way of Satan. So uh, God is using us to stand for what is right. And when we're with a group of people know that they need some salt and you're the salt shaker. So salt them with Christ. Then in verses 14 to 16, or to glorify God. Uh, we share the light of his truth with the world. The church does not exist for social activism. It exists for the total transformation of the human soul. We're here to change people for eternity. That's what we're all about. We are the light of the world for truth. And we don't keep it hidden. I, I worked with a man one time who uh, I had to ask him, are, are you a Christian? What do you believe about God? He says, yeah, I am, but I don't want to talk about it. I said, well, could you tell me we're going to be working together? Why don't you want to talk about it? He says, because I believe Christianity is a private thing. I don't think I have the right to share it with anybody else. I, I just want to be a closet Christian. And, you know, well, that's wonderful, but the Bible says that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to share it. We have been given the eternal truth of God, and it's right here. We didn't make it up. Uh, We believed it, and it's here. We believe it for others, and we're going to let that light shine. Our kids sing a little song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? Uh, I was going to sing it for you, but sadly, we don't don't have enough time. All right. (laughs) The truth is something we are meant to share with everyone. And it doesn't matter whether we're theological Calvinists or theological Arminians. It doesn't matter. We're to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the good news that I can tell you how to go to heaven if you'd listen. You are God's light in this dark world. Light allows one to see the dangers of the world and, and the way to safety. See, the world is going to send people to hell, and we're trying to show them the light of heaven and the truth on how I can get to heaven. That's what we want to see. How do I get there? And we say it's simple. You make a decision that you're not gonna get in there on your own, you're not gonna work your way in because that's impossible. The Bible says you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, what do I believe? That he is the son of God. That he died on a cross to pay for my sins and that if I just believe he did that for me, I just simply say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I ask forgiveness. Would you be my savior? I believe you died on the cross for me. That's all they have to do. And God will give them eternal life. Now, God will take you where you're at, absolutely. But he, does, he doesn't intend to leave you there. He'll take your life and he'll transform it so that you can be a light, so that you can be salt to others. And he'll make you a better person as far as what God thinks is good and what God thinks is better. So he's not going to leave you that way. He's going to transform the human soul and the human body as well. And we must get that truth out. In verse 15, the light has a purpose. It's to shine, not to be hidden. My boss was terribly wrong. It's not something you keep to yourself. Somebody shared it with him. That's how he got it. What if everybody had that view? No, we're not going to share it. We're not going to tell you. Well, then Jesus wouldn't have, have the preaching of the good news. Terrifyingly, there are churches all over our land where the truth is not being told about the Bible or about Jesus. Jesus. And what that does is it causes confusion in the streets. And we heard up here earlier on the screen, we heard people that actually knew what the truth was. We heard a lot of other people that not only didn't know who Jesus was, but really didn't care. They were polite enough to say, well, at least he's a good man and he did good things for people, all right? There's places where they're more about social issues than they are about the transforming power of the blood of Jesus. You wanna change society? then be the salt and the light and change people's hearts because it's from the heart that flows everything out of a man, whether it be wickedness or goodness. Telling people that the gospel is good news is good, but telling the gospel is through good works is not good because that would be a lie. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't be good enough. The good news is not good works. The good news is that you can be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. It is the repentance and faith that Christ is looking for for his finished work on the cross where he paid for our sins. Churches are so busy impressing the world with how well they fit in with the current social issues of the world that they are no longer with Jesus. Dr. Craig Blomberg said, and I quote, we must permeate society as agents of redemption, end quote. We won't approach that with any regard for race or for color, or for creed, Uh, Jesus, not the world, wrote the book on not being prejudiced. Jesus wrote the book on loving every person. Jesus wrote the book on equality. And, And in Christ, there is no male nor female, there is no slave nor free, just children of God. And Jesus is the one who teaches us how to love, not the world. We want everybody in the house to see the truth in our lives and to hear it from our hearts. So in verse 16, Jesus said, So let your light shine so the unsaved can see it. The world is in darkness. Jesus is the light. You know what we bring to the table? We bring salt and truth. We bring a healthy meal for everyone, spiritually speaking. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter, the leader of the apostles, said, uh, be ready to make a defense to anybody who asks you about why do you hope in Jesus? Why did, you, why did you trust him? Be ready with an answer. A big part of shining our light before men and women is to do good works and keep him with our faith. So they're attracted to that. Why do you act differently than everybody else? And your way doesn't get you in trouble. And your way doesn't get you uh, broken relationships. How do you do that? Our good works are done with the right motive, not to get us into heaven, but to shine the light and salt the world of Jesus Christ. Every day passes. I think that we're seeing fewer and fewer good works being done in our society. So if we do the good things of Jesus Christ, we can, we can really shine in this dark world. That means it is easier for us to draw attention to Jesus in our society if we live his way. I want to end by saying, or asking this, do we, do we really love people? Do you love those little Iwana kids that come on Wednesday night and you get to teach them the Bible, you get to teach them stories about the Bible? Do you really love them? Do you care about their eternal soul? I know that you do, or you wouldn't be here and you wouldn't be doing that. If we found somebody in Iwana who didn't care about their kids, we would ask them to do something else because we don't want you around the kids. Do we really love people? Then we need to care enough to rescue them from the fire. That's what Jude said in Jude chapter one, verse 23. There's only one chapter in Jude, but Jude 23. He said, snatching them from the fire. You know, my dad led me to Christ when I was eight years old on my bunk bed, going to bed one night. Um, I didn't see this, but spiritually speaking, my dad snatched a young brand from the fires of hell that night by telling me the good news of Jesus. And I trusted that, and I trusted Jesus as my Savior. And I passed from death to life, from darkness to the light, from from having to uh, be headed for the fire to be headed for a useful eternity and existence. And I want to get there by salting the world and shedding the light of God. And you can do that too if you've never made that decision. We learn here as believers, number one, We are to be the flavor of Christ to the dear souls around you everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, be the dear flavor of Christ. Secondly, make sure the light of God's truth shines from you always. Make sure the light of his truth shines from you always. And thirdly, our motivation in life is to glorify God who loved and saved us. I would just like to uh, invite... Or challenge you if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You thought you were going to get into heaven by being good. You thought you'd get there by doing good works. And the Bible, it turns out, says all our good works, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's simple. You can't get in without Jesus. You can't go around Jesus. You have to go through Jesus. How do I go through Jesus? Well, what I do is I realize I can't work my way in, I can't be good enough. There's only one way. And that is if I trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and that I am forgiven. And he will, he will regenerate your spirit. He'll make your spirit alive. He'll give you a new life and a new way to look at things. And he'll give you something to do in life like salting and, sh- and sharing the light of Christ's truth. It'll actually count for something in the next life. And he frees you from the penalty of, of God's Judgment against your sin. Let's pray. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for inviting people to become your children. And many of us, most of us in here have done that. And you've also called us to reach other people who haven't made that decision. Tell them about the love of Jesus that wants to save them from punishment. Tell them about the love of Jesus where he wants to wrap his arms around them and hold them and carry them and love them in life. And he's provided a way for them to have it. If there's anyone here who made that decision, I pray that they might tell me so I can give them some information about what they did and so that they can solidify that in their minds and in their hearts. And I'll be careful to give you praise for it. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for giving us this truth. And thank you, Father, for uh, the Iwana kids that come and for their parents that let them come so that we can share what the truth of the word of God says for them. And Lord, I just want to thank you for the time we get to have with them in fellowship after this, uh, this service. And thank you for your word. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.